Hello, and welcome to Expected Value, the podcast that goes inside the sports analytics world. I'm Paul Carr from True Media. This is episode 58, so it's the Von Miller episode. Von Miller with the Broncos, at least, or going back further, how about Derek Thomas, you had Jack Lambert, and on that note, we're talking about pass rushing today in the NFL. Today's guest continues an Expected Value tradition of talking to a winner of the NFL's Big Data Bowl which held its final and announced a winner at the Combine last week. So on this show, we'll be joined by Hassan and Ayatawi, part of a University of Toronto three-person team that won the contest with $20,000 first prize. That's on top of the $10,000 they won for being among the eight finalists. And they bested almost 300 entries from over 400 participants. So well done by them. As Hassan will tell us, the subject this year was analyzing offensive and defensive line play, and his team's entry won with their continuous pocket pressure metric and visualization. So Hassan and I will talk about what kind of data he and his team were given, how they thought about attacking the question, picking the right data to work with, how he pitched using this to a coach, what surprised him from working with NFL data, what he would do with more time and data access, what he would like to be doing in five years, and advice for fellow students looking to get into the sports analytics field. Then producer Sergio De La Esprilla will join me to react and wrap things up. Without further ado, here's the expected value conversation with 2023 Big Data Bowl winner Hassan and Ayatali. We're joined now on Expected Value by Hassan Anayatali, University of Toronto senior-to-be and one of the big datable winners, along with Aaron White and Daniel Hosevar. Hassan, welcome to the show. Let me start at kind of the beginning of the big datable. What was the question that you were asked this year uh, to come up with a solution? So our project was looking at the uh, performance of offensive and defensive linemen, so looking on linemen on passing plays. And so we had like there were a lot of different ways you could approach it because there um, there wasn't really any set direction. They kind of just gave you an open ended problem, um, lots of tracking data. And so essentially our process was we, we took in that data. We initially started looking at it like I guess just getting some general like exploratory data analysis. So just looking into what was in the data, how it was constructed, how we could work with it. Um, so the process really just started with us just looking at how we can visualize the data. So I think one of the important things with working with tracking data especially is that it's very difficult to like look at these extremely long sets of data and try to like parse it together in a way that you will understand it. It's a lot easier to be able to visualize it and then start working from those visualizations to construct your final products. So I think that was the biggest thing. Once we had like a set for like any given play, we can just visualize what happens on a regular NFL field. That's when we started doing some literature review, looking into a lot of different papers that had previously looked at either offensive line performance, defensive line performance, just generally, I guess, what was the current infrastructure in place? So for example, um, like there were a few plays, there were a few examples of obviously like everyone's heard the same court, like sacks or quarterback stat, things like that. Like those come up a lot when you're doing a lot of like research, just trying to understand what the, the space is. And we thought, what would be better than developing like a continuous metric for what pressure is? Because 
um, like I've played hockey, baseball, um, football, like for, for over my life. So it's at this point, I kind of gotten to the point where I, I know that pressure exists, even if it's not necessarily recorded. If let's say someone's trying to sack me from like three yards, if there's someone's three yards away from me versus one yard away from me, I'm feeling pressure in either case. So the ideology was how can we quantify those differences in pressure while still kind of taking into the nuances of what happens on an NFL field? So let me take a step back because you mentioned some of the data that you have access to. I think you know in the business we know a little more what that data is. What like what do you have specifically? You mentioned the tracking data. What parts of that are you looking at? What kind of information are you working with? For sure. So we are given like tracking data for every for eight weeks of um, gameplay, and essentially in that data we have every player's uh, like position, like x and y coordinates. We have their speed. We have their direction. We have their orientation. So. We were taking all that into account. In addition, we have player data, so describing every player's like um, basic things like name, height, position, etc. Uh, PFF scouting data, so that's really useful in terms of knowing like more information about the player. So, for example, it could be like their blocking scheme, what exactly, like how many people are pa- rushing the passer on a particular play, what's their initial uh, intention in terms of rushing the passer. So, we were working with PFF scouting data play data just generally describing what happened over the play a lot of different outcomes so yeah we had a a lot of different data sources which were all kind of providing more context behind the tracking data we were working with so you said one of the first things you did was to try and visualize it because that's easier than staring at tables of numbers Um, so so then what did you was it from those visualizations it kind of triggered something or did you have you kind of said that you had something in mind that of what you wanted to do uh once you went in and then had to figure out how to attack that? Yeah, for sure. So it started off with us trying to just understand how we can define pressure continuously, i.e. like trying to understand how pressure evolves as opposed to just understanding like a binary outcome at the end of the play. And then one of the things we, were, we came across when doing like a literature review was a paper from the Sloan Sports Analytics Conference in 2018 by Luke Bourne and Javier Fernandez, which was describing um, open spaces, like how we can quantify the control of a particular area and space. And we just saw this and we were thinking, like, this matches exactly what we want to do. We want to quantify the space around the quarterback. And if you think about the ball in, like, soccer as, like, the quarterback in football, you can kind of see very distinct parallels. Everyone's trying to get at it. Who has control in the space around the ball? Who has space around the control around the quarterback? And these kind of ideas just kind of triggered something in our heads that, like, oh, this is perfect for what we want to do. And so we kind of just ran with that idea all the way through to the finish. So one thing you mentioned uh, on your Kaggle page was that you stripped out, uh, you only use shotgun snaps, basically. And I think that's interesting as kind of a microcosm of, I feel like in any data set like this, there's always things like that you need to do to focus what you're doing, to make the data better, cleaner, more consistent. What was the thinking behind that? Because I think it's a good idea. I'm just curious because I think we always run into the problems like this. So what was the thinking? Why exclude the sh- or why limit yourself to shotgun snaps? Sure. So shotgun plays make up 80% of all passing plays in the data set. So that was like our first notion that we went into the project thinking if we're going to do something, we want to make sure we do it right. And we want to make sure we develop something that everyone feels is readily usable. The issue with plays with quarter, where the quarterback is under center, at least from our perspective, is that how do we define pressure when the quarterback is taking the snap from under center? Because he certainly can't release the ball. The defensive linemen are literally like a few feet away like it's not they're anywhere close so if you try to quantify pressure in a sense of like the quarterback is that close to center you get 
a lot it, like the, it just doesn't add up in terms of the control of space because you could theoretically say that the defensive line are all over him even though it's just the start of the play the alternative is like if you were to try to consider it only from when they've dropped back then all of a sudden you're giving the defensive line a like a half second or a second head start on getting to the quarterback so if you try to measure the evolution of pressure over the duration of a play and compare that in a um in a play in a situation where the quarterback is under center versus when they're under shotgun you end up with drastically different results so we just thought this is the best way we can both limit our scope to something that makes sense while also not limiting too much data such that it's unused it's like not scalable to a larger setting so you do the continuous pressure model what's the next step for you in that process to then make it something that's a little easier to understand that you could then you know ideally present to coaches or other people what's the next step after you develop that first model so after we developed that first model, I think this was probably the key to one of the reasons why we were able to be so successful in the NFL Big Data Bowl, is that we wanted to make sure that the visualizations we developed were something that everyone intuitively just saw and they were like, okay, that makes sense. So for example, when we were developing like control models for like how much space does a player have control, we developed something very simple like concentric circles around the quarterback, which continuously go outwards and then darker colors representing higher levels of control around the defense. And our theory, like our understanding of that was that if the defensive line is approaching the quarterback, those concentric circles will slowly get darker and darker around the quarterback, similar to the way you would imagine pressure to actually be in real life. So our, think, our thought process is that if a coach, if anyone sees that, they see the pressure metric in the top right corner, they see like, okay, that lines up with our intuition. They see the visualization on the field, they're like, okay, that's what's really happening in the play. So if you take both of those and you combine them together, all of a sudden you have something that's usable and like people will see and they'll understand exactly what's happening. So then from there, you also have your team and individual yeah. pressure numbers. Tell me about those and how you develop those. Sure. So one of the things with, um, like one of the things with working with the uh, passing plays is that they're right censored, meaning like generally, um, let's say a pre like some plays will go 1.5 seconds, some plays will go four seconds. In the plays that are 1.5 seconds, you don't know whether, let's say like those plays were to have extended another two seconds, whether or not the offensive line would have held up. Like you just don't have that information. So we employed a method called survival analysis, which essentially enabled us to take into account the, the right censored nature of our data to essentially create a survival probability curve. I like uh, essentially modeling what's the probability that the pocket is breached over the course of the play. If you take the area under that curve, you get what's known as a, li a life expectancy. And so our two new metrics were like the pocket life expectancy, offensive pocket life expectancy, where a higher offensive pocket life expectancy is better, and defensive pocket life expectancy, where a lower one would be better because that means the defense is breaching the pocket at a faster rate. And how do you, so you also have an individual player version of that. How do you, how do those two work together? The individual and the player versions of the OPLE and the DPLE? Yeah, absolutely. I think the, for the defensive side, essentially, because we know that defensive players are substituted on and off the field very regularly, what you will be able to see is that um, when a defensive player is on the field, what's the pocket life expectancy during those plays? When they're off the field, what's the pocket life expectancy during those plays? And then you can compare those and then multiply that by like the number of plays that they're on the field to kind of see what's their net impact. How much time in seconds did they reduce the quarterback from being able to have over the course of all of their plays in the data set? And I think that was one of like the surplus pressure metric. And for most of the players that we saw in the, in the rankings, it seemed to line up with what our intuition was. Anything surprise you in those rankings? You know, it's always, I think it's always, 
I want to say Bill James said something like it's good if 10% or 20% of the results are surprising. Anything surprise you uh, just as far as kind of the outputs when you see who's on a list or a team that's on a list, something like that? Yeah, there were a few, like quite a few players on the list who we like, obviously, like, for example, Aaron Donald ranked fifth in our interior rushers, which is good. But at the same time, we like some uh, someone initially said to us, like, why isn't he first? Aaron Donald's obviously the best interior rusher in the league. And I think that what our goal was is that we wanted to, to define something that's relative value. So it's not necessarily if you were to put these players in a vacuum, how much better, that, how, how good are they? Our control was if you were to remove these players off their team, how much worse off would they be? So, for example, Grady Jarrett ranked first in our interior rushers, and he's a pr relatively well-known um, defensive pass rusher. But the interesting thing about that is that their off-field DPLE is the lowest amongst any of the players in the, in the rankings, while their on-field DPLE is relatively strong relative to the other players in the rankings. So if you're looking at that, you're saying essentially Grady Jarrett is adding a lot of value to the Atlanta Falcons pass rush. Whereas with Aaron Donald, it's not so much that his on-field DPLE versus off-field DPLE, it's th not that he's not making an impact. He still ranks fifth, which says something considering the Rams' pass rush capabilities with players like Leonard Floyd at the time of the data set. There were like a lot of, uh, like they had a lot of depth on that team. So the ideology of trying to develop some relative value rankings I think it made a lot of sense intuitively in our minds, but I don't think you can necessarily just take them in a vacuum and say, these are the best edge rushers, these are the best interior rushers, there's more to it. So the individual number is relative to the team in the sense that, yeah, it's it's almost a value above replacement player for that team, not necessarily, but that could change if you put Grady Jarrett on the Rams or something like that, it would look differently, right? Yeah, exactly. Like if you put Miles Garrett on the Rams, and every time you took like Aaron Donald off, you simultaneously decided to have the edge rusher like uh, like Miles Garrett on, your rankings probably wouldn't show nearly as much value for Aaron Donald. So, if you are then going to a team, let's say just for an example, you're going to talk to a team, and you have these metrics, and these tools, you're talking to a coach or a front office person who has to make decisions on personnel. How do you pitch that to them? How do you say because obviously these metrics are useful, but you also have to convince somebody, which is a big part of the process for analysts working with other people, is convince them of usefulness, giving them use cases, et cetera. What's the, what do you pitch to them on how this would be used by a team? I think you look at it from the perspective of, okay, let's say we were to replace, let's say we were decided to remove a particular player from our team. Like, let's say you have a free agency decision to see how much that'll impact your, like, your defense, like, in a vacuum. So, assuming you were to remove that player, how capable are, is your team based off of, like, solely what's available on your current roster? That provides a good piece of information. Like, take Grady Jarrett, like the example that I provided earlier. You would know that, okay, Grady Jarrett provides a lot of surplus pressure. You remove him off that pass rush your defense is ranking one of the worst in the league just based on pocket life expectancy. So like that's one example where you can't, you, you're able to see those kinds of outcomes. So I'd say that's one example of how you could pitch those kinds of results. You had a limited amount of time and data for this competition. If you were to continue working on this, had access to a larger data set, whatever, what would your next steps, your extensions be if you had a lot more time to continue what you did in a you know, relatively short amount of time? Yeah, I think the the surplus pressure is actually probably one of the areas that we would want to improve because 
Um, for example, there are players who are very commonly like listed together. If you look, uh, Shaq Barrett and Dominican Sue are both on rankings side by side on the uh, edge rusher side, even though Dominican Sue could be argued not as, but like that's what he was listed in the data set. But taking that as, as an example, uh, I think Emmanuel Ogba and um, Jalen Phillips were also listed together. So those kinds of examples where players are probably being put on the same situation together, you're likely going to see those same on-field versus off-field, and it's very hard to attribute which one's actually responsible. So going forward with that, I think that's one possible area you could get. And then the other component is just that the off-field data is immediately affected by what's on-field because if you have more on-field data, that immediately means that you have less off-field data. So if you have an entire season's worth of data for every player, you're much more likely to get better rankings for surplus pressure than you would, let's say, if you were to just say, okay, we have eight weeks of data, how well are they performing? For example, Rashawn Geary, sorry. Yeah, I was just saying, Rashawn Geary was one of the best in, um, edge rushers at the beginning of the year, and you can see that he's first. But over the course of the season, maybe those rankings don't hold up because it's a smaller sample size. So on, on a light note, you're from the University of Toronto. Toronto team wins. Last year, a team from British Columbia won. What's going on in Canada? Why, why is everyone up there? Not, I know not everyone, but uh, what's the sports analytics thing that's going on up there? What's in the water? Yeah, I think that's one of the things that's really exciting. Like Simon Fraser and the University of Toronto, we've both been really invested in cultivating our sports analytics group. We hold um, we hold like sports analytics meetings every week where like one of like we're all executives on the University of Toronto sports analytics student group. So we always present we're always presenting data. We're always presenting results of like new analysis that we're doing. And then Simon Fraser has Tim Schwartz, a lot of really like well-known uh, professors in academia as it relates to sports analytics. So I think that those two communities are really fostering like this. I guess, nature of like trying to develop the sports analytics community. You sort of answered this question with that a little bit, but if I'm a student or someone who wants to get into the field, like what do you, uh, let's focus specifically on students since that's where you're at. What's your advice to someone who's incoming freshman, interested, how do you, what would, where would you kind of direct them or at least give them some general t pointers or tips? Yeah, I mean, I think this might be a bit generic, but it's like get started on a project because it's very easy to be like, like a little bit overwhelmed by like the amount of in like we we put a lot into this project as you can imagine it takes a lot of time but that really just starts from like getting the process started and eventually you want to build on your own ideas so if you get started on a project there's not any um, like effort in the sports analytics field specifically will never go unnoticed if you develop something that people want to use you will almost always have value in this field and so I would say just getting started on a project, even though if it, even if it results to nothing other than Miles Garrett is a good edge rusher, like even if you have like even if you have something that shows specifically that that's the case, you are already adding value to the field. So I think it's just getting started and like working with the data. Yeah, I hear, hear a lot from people in the industry. They want to see the output, but it's almost the process as much as anything because you know it's easy to make tweaks to certain things or edit whatever, but if it's the mental way of working around and through all the different things they have to deal with when building models or whatever it might be. Um, how did you get into sports analytics? I mean, is this a field that had interest to you? Obviously, you're studying in college, but what was your kind of your path to where you are so far? Yeah, so the um, like my first day in university when we had a clubs fair, the University of Toronto Sports Analytics group had like a, a fair, had like a, a booth at the area. So I found out a bit more information and it was kind of everything I've dreamed of doing. It was weird, I didn't really know, like I knew the idea of analytics before I'd gone there, but it was just that 
the sports analytics like field actually there was actually a club at U of T that specifically did that and my program is the engineering science program at U of T it's like it's all this coding like there's a lot of mathematics course statistics course and I was just thinking oh, like this is perfect I get to do all of these things that I already know I love doing in a field that I've spent what the last 13 15 years of my life just like obsessing over so it was just an amazing opportunity to merge those passions that's great where do you where do you think you want to be five years from now obviously we're not holding you to anything but what kind of is out there that you're thinking of that you'd like to do so i'm like a big hockey analytics guy like as well and so i ideally want to make it further in that field progress the analytics field in hockey because um, as you can probably imagine, like hockey is a very dynamic sport, obviously very Canadian generic answer, but like hockey is a very dynamic sport. It's much more, I would argue it's much more difficult to quantify given the fact that it's not a stop and start sport the way the NFL is. And I just think that if you can solve problems in that space, you're advancing the boundaries in a way that hasn't really been done before. And I think that that's something I'm like really invested in. All right, we're going to wrap things up with a few quick hitters, some of your favorite things. So what is your favorite number and why? Uh, favorite number, 99, Wayne Gretzky. Uh, should have seen that one coming from Canadian. Favorite athlete, then? Does that answer that question, too? Actually, no. My favorite athlete is Roy Halladay from the Toronto Blue Jays. Yeah, I grew up watching him because I was a pitcher as well. I love watching him play. Nice, nice. Uh, do you have a favorite thing that you keep track of just because, you know, like we're dorks. You know, I track I have like every movie I've ever seen in a spreadsheet. Do you have anything along those lines that you just keep track of for yourself? Uh, it's a little difficult. I I don't think I track anything. I mean, growing up, I think I like I would check the newspaper, like the standings, every single day. But beyond that, nothing like in particular. All right, you have to work on that. Get back <laughs> get back to me on that one. Uh, f and finally, favorite cool thing that's happened in this big data bowl process. Obviously, we're at the combine. A lot's going on for you this week. Is any favorite interaction or something stand out for you so far? I mean, I've had the chance to see Pete Carroll, Sean Payton, like a few of the guys you you watch on TV, and it's like a kind of a, a little bit of a surreal experience because they're like they're people. You know, you get to see them in real life. Like, I guess that's kind of an interesting thing that's happened since I've gotten here. Yeah, it is wild. Just people walking around and, and not wearing their team gear or whatever. It's it's a it's a fun thing just to sit and and watch the world go by, the football world go by here. So, all right, Hassan Anayatali, University of Toronto senior and winner of the Big Data Bowl. Thanks for joining us here on Expected Value. Thank you very much. Back in the True Media Studios, I'm Paul Carr. Thanks again to Hassan and Ayatali for joining us on the show. Check our show notes for links to his team's cackle page and all the big datable finalist entries and a couple stories about Hassan and his team. I'm joined now by producer Sergio de la Esprilla. Sergio, welcome to the show. Any thoughts? What did you take away from this conversation with Hassan? Thanks, Paul. Um, it's nice to see you again. I, I like uh, that we're playing instead of where in the world is Carmen San Diego. It's <laughs> where in the world is Paul Carr over the past uh, month or so. <laughs> it's been a month. So I'm trying to uh, get my uh, state passport stamped for the whole year. Yeah, right. Just try to try to get it done. Um, no, I thought it was a great conversation with Hassan. I thought it was um, very informative. I think uh, the biggest takeaway that I took was the life expectancy statistic that they were they spent time developing i thought that was genius um you know the higher the life expectancy the better it is for the quarterback because obviously they have more time in the pocket or outside the pocket but the less time the better it is for the rushing player because <laughs> they're trying to get to the to the quarterback as quickly as possible so i thought that that was a fantastic stat to to really develop and 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 come up with and experiment with and it's something that all we we all kind of know what that stat is 
innately like inside of ourselves if you watch football but to put it onto you know a piece of paper or software and such i thought that that was that was genius um i really enjoyed that statistic i thought that was really yeah it was i mean it's it's straightforward you know a lot of times we come up with fancy metrics and maybe the scale isn't intuitive doesn't or even if you scale like zero to a hundred which is you know, that's a pretty common thing. That's very helpful, but it's still just not kind of a, I don't know, normal number of sorts. And it's, this is just seconds. And I think a, that's become more kind of mainstream in the past few years that two and a half seconds is kind of your average pocket. And a lot of football fans know that, but even if you don't like a second and a half, second and a half of pocket life expectancy, that's pretty intuitive that if you're getting to the quarterback that fast, that's good. And if you have four seconds, that's good for the offense. So I think that's a really valuable thing for any kind of metric that, or stat that you're coming up with is just make it as intuitive as possible. Uh, you take this to a coach, you don't have to explain necessarily the details of it, but if you can just say, Hey, when this guy's on the field, when Bosa's on the field, pick your Bosa. Uh, yeah. <laughs> the pocket expectancy is two seconds. And when they're not, it's three seconds. Pretty easy for anybody to understand. The easiness of understanding that stat is kind of, I think, it, I, I think this is kind of a, a canary in the coal mine for a larger statistic discussion where there's a lot of people, whether they're not into sports at all or whether they're very much like, oh, I, well, I liked watching sports back in the day when it wasn't so many numbers that kind of like, why do I care about QBR? Why do I care about expected whatever, you know, to pick your sport, right? Um like I've had the expected goals conversation with my dad 15 times and so he he kind of gets it now, but still he's like, I don't get how that's something I need to know to watch the game. And I understand that sentiment. I get that. He's been, they've been watching a sport for so long without any of this. Now we introduce all of these metrics to try to quantify and to try to understand the game more. I get why people don't want to have that. But if you present a stat like this and you just say, Hey, this is the stat, right? The stat, like you said, when a Bosa brother is on the field, pick your Bosa. I like that. Um, the ex- life expectancy of the quarterback is two seconds. But when he's not on the field, it's three seconds, which will tell you, okay, the quarterback has an extra second, or if you want to get technical with it, uh, an additional 50% more time to get rid of the football than he does when a Bosa brother is not on the field. And I feel like that is such an easily – it's such a, that's a stat that's so easy to digest to anyone that it's kind of the gateway and could be the introduction to statistics, how you and I at True Media see it, how people within the sports industry see it, um, and and a bunch of other people. And, and I think that that's, that's kind of a, an underrated aspect of the simplicity of the stuff that Hassan and his team were doing, and, and specifically this life expectancy stat. That's why it stood out to me so much, because I'm always trying to find that bridge between quote-unquote stats people and quote-unquote like traditional sports people you know so if we can get to that bridge we can be able to make it more normalized in in the way that we watch sports as a as consumers and i suspect this is part of the reason that it won i mean this is basically adding a number to the way that people talk about the game just like expected goals is basically a numerical way, way of saying hey arsenal had the much better chances in this game this is a numerical way of saying they are not protecting the quarterback at all, or they're getting great protection, which is something you hear in virtually every single NFL game, college game, whatever. 
game that you watch a football, they're talking about the pocket and how it's holding up. This is just a way of quantifying it, which is whenever you can just speak that language of both coaches and TV, you're going to do well. And I suspect that's a big reason this one was the first place winner. Yeah, I, I completely agree. One thing I wanted to touch on was the importance of these contests. I mean, we've probably talked about it before, uh, but for anyone who's interested in getting into this field, you know, I'm often asked, how do you get into sports analytics, blah, blah, blah. One of the key ways is to participate in a contest like this. I'm not saying you have to participate in the NFL Big Data Bowl. There's, uh, you know, there's a hockey version that's kind of similar. Uh, stats bomb, stats perform, make data available on the soccer front. You can you know, scrape things from different places, et cetera. Um, but it's really just working with the data. Uh, even if you're not a finalist, just getting to work with real NFL NGS data is invaluable. You get practical hands-on experience. Uh, you can learn whether or not you want to go into a field like this. Like maybe you do this and work on it and realize this isn't for me or I want to go a different direction. And that's obviously fine. Uh, you, there's a networking aspect There's because there's a mentorship program that's part of this specific one. So a lot of these contests will have something like that. And you come out with some sort of project, even if you're not a winner or a finalist, because there are what, 400 people that participated in this. You have a project that you can show a potential employer. And sometimes it's not the project itself, but it's just proof that you kind of know how to think through challenges. And as proof that you know, these contests can lead to employment, over they said over 50 participants have been hired into the sports analytics space from the previous four versions of this contest. And many of them are NFL That's teams. That's fantastic. Yeah. So, I mean, this is a, it's an entry into the world. Again, obviously doing well helps, but even that, you can learn so much about, you know, programming skills, coding skills, just your own mental skills and things like that from doing these things that this is one of the, not this specific one, but just in general, these kinds of contests, this kind of data is one of the first things that if you want to get into this uh, kind of deeper analytics space on the sports side, this is the way to do it. All right. Thanks, Sergio. Thanks once again to Hassan for joining us on the show. You can check our archives for podcasts with other big data bowl winners, including Robin Ritchie last year, uh, Jill Reiner and Ella Summer in 2021, Jimmy Chikordeev and Philip Singer back in 2019. Plus, one of our very first episodes, I think it was number three, was with Michael Lopez, who's the NFL's director of analytics and the driving force behind the Big Data Bowl. That's all in our archives. While you're there, please rate and interview the show if possible. That always helps us grow an audience and share the show however you can. Twitter, LinkedIn, old-fashioned word of mouth, etc. On behalf of Sergio De La Esperia and all of us here at True Media, I'm Paul Carr. Thank you for listening to Expected Value, the podcast that goes inside the sports analytics world. Mm-hmm.